20 Extraordinary Women, One Chance to Save a Kingdom. What would you sacrifice to save your family, your loved ones, yourself? In September 1486, the reign of King Henry VII of England is again threatened by York loyalists. The only thing standing in the way is a 400-year-old she who just wants to be left alone and a group of London women with a lot to lose if England is plunged back into war. But in 1486, women have no power, only the ability to make difficult choices and sometimes heartbreaking sacrifices. Become immersed in the fascinating, perilous lives of these women, as told through the medium of 25 interwoven short stories. A prostitute selling her daughter's virginity to pay her debts. A nun returning to the world after 30 years. A laundress whose son is murdered. A lady's maid hiding her Jewish culture. A blind musician running from a forced marriage and more. Each story is a piece in the puzzle. Each woman faces her own trials as she plays her small part in the desperate attempt to protect King Henry and his wife, Elizabeth of York. Because if they fail, England will once again be thrust into civil war between the Yorks and Lancasters, and these four and twenty women have already sacrificed too much. This intriguing blurb belongs to Blackbird Singh, a Ruin She novel, that has just been listed on the Prime Minister's Literary Awards and for the World Fantasy Awards. The author of Blackbird Sing, who is joining me today for a chat, is Ike Flintheart. Ike is in Brisbane. Sorry, I'll interrupt you and just say hello there. (laughs) Okay, say hello. Hello. Okay, so more about you. Um, Ike lives in Brisbane, Australia with her husband and son, and she's the author of fast-paced, easy-reading historical fantasy novels, including the 80 AD series, the Kalima Chronicles, the Ruin She series, and the non-fiction writing how-to book, Fight Like a Girl. In between running a business full-time and being a wife and mother, she squeezes in martial arts, archery, painting, writing, reading, belly dancing, and playing several musical instruments. She says that occasionally she even sleeps, but I'm not sure if I believe her on that one. This is Galactic Chat. I'm Helen Stubbs, and welcome to the show, Ike Flintheart. Hello again. Thank you for that lovely introduction. You're welcome. Uh, So, you're in my own time zone, which is great. Well, are you enjoying this warmer weather? Oh, isn't it lovely? Not. (laughs) No, too hot. I'm sure summer has lasted at least an extra month this year. And last year too. March is still summer, isn't it now? It's a good thing global warming is a complete figment of everybody's imagination, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, though we have had it a bit easier than down south. They've really suffered, I think, this yeah, they have. I've got quite a few friends down in Canberra who in the speculative fiction sort of area down there and I see their feeds and, oh, they've had a yeah. shocking year. The smoke. Yeah. The apocalypse is like here, isn't it? Okay. Yeah, pretty much. All the dystopian fiction has now been shifted into current affairs. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, on, brighter, on a brighter note, congratulations <laughs> on the accolades Blackbird Singh has achieved um, with listings in the Prime Minister's Literary Awards and World Fantasy Awards. Um, I'm a little surprised that the Prime Minister can read, but um, seriously, it must be a great feeling to 
Yeah. It is, it is. Look, it's early days yet. They've just they've just been accepted for, you know, reading. They haven't been outright rejected, which is nice. Because the, the literary awards are notorious for not particularly liking genre fiction, which is like fantasy, science fiction, that sort of stuff. So it'll be interesting to see how far it gets through. Is there any shift there? Like I don't know. It feels like there should be a shift to be more accepting of there should, but there's always been this dichotomy between literary fiction and genre fiction, where genre fiction is considered popular and, you know, sells really well, and literary fiction is considered elite and cultured, and they don't kind of meet terribly well in the middle. So it'll be very interesting to see how far it makes it through. Good luck. Um... I'm currently reading and loving Blackbird Sing, and the premise and conceit are super cool. Can you tell us about the structure of the novel and the world in which Ansel, um, Helen the Healer, and Matilda the Poacher and all the other women live? Yeah, I just I have a friend, Angela Slater, who has written what she likes to call tapestry novels, where a whole series of short stories are loosely connected to each other or share a world. And I was like... That's a really cool idea, but I wanted to take it a step further so that not only are the stories all connected, but the characters are all connected and they all actually push forward an overarching narrative, which is that attempt to kill Henry. And then I also wanted to make it an exercise for myself to teach myself how to write really unique and distinctive character voices and 24 different character voices in one story is quite challenging well it's it's a lot isn't it it's a lot of different points of view but um so is there a difference between tapestry and mosaic fiction like i really like the term tapestry it's pretty much the same thing yeah it's just basically where they're all woven together somehow and connected by threads yeah and i love the way like each character is kind of introduced mostly before you get into their point of view, so you kind of already have a bit of an idea of them. That's interesting. Um, yeah, they all uh, they all sort of, well, not all of them, but, like, they keep uh, making cameos in each other's stories, yeah. part, partly to help the reader reconnect with key characters and partly to help draw the reader through into the next story and partly because it's, you know, London in 1486 was quite a small town and they would have known each other. You know, there weren't that many people. They would have all been brought up quite similarly. They would have all had very similar cultures and exposures and thinking patterns. So it was like two degrees of separation or something or yeah, everybody Everybody knew everybody. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you get that feel and um, the similarities of their experiences, like it's interesting to see having no power – you know, kind of being owned, um, yeah. being told who they're going to marry, they have to do what their their parents say or their husband says. It's just it's a stark reminder of, like, what it would be like to have no rights. Like, it is. It, and it was really interesting doing the research because there is a perception that women had no rights and that's actually not true there was nothing formally written down like in law but women actually did own businesses at that point in time and it wasn't until slightly later almost into the puritan era that a lot of those rights got taken away from them so in the medieval and the late medieval era which this is they actually had more rights than or more access to the ability to get things done than right. people realise they did. So, yeah, the, the research was fascinating. Yeah, yeah. 
And it would have been a necessity too, with so many of the men dying in the war, that women do have to do, like, well, they have to work, but then they have to work in other areas as well, don't they? That yeah, yeah, they, they have, have to take, take over the husband's businesses. businesses. They yeah. have to run the household and do everything else. Just like, and there were a lot of wars at those point. A lot of men died. Yeah. So yeah. you do what you do. Yeah, and the women suffered. Yep, and, and they, they just, just step up and take over. And I really wanted to give voice to all of these silent women who often don't make it into any stories in this era. You hear a lot about the queens and the ladies and the royals, but you hear very little about the everyday ordinary women, and that was who I wanted to, to showcase. Yeah, you definitely have. Can we talk a little about the vocab too? Like I'm coming across these interesting words now. Sad I could work out what that meant. Um, <laughs> Gramercy I had to look up. There's been some others. So researching vocab how do you go about that? Like, yeah, yeah, it's the research was such a rabbit hole, uh, you know. And I am a scientist by originally. I was a geologist, so I did learn how to research, which stood me in very good stead because yeah. you do get sucked down deep rabbit holes. I bet. But uh, it was a lot of fun, and and it was a lot of fun picking out the key words that would be obvious reasonably obvious to the reader in context because you yeah. can't use all of the vocab because no. if you if we went back in time and you actually tried to speak to somebody in that era you would not understand half of what they said yeah that's what I was thinking so yeah just picking those specific words yeah and he's sort of the era is kind of halfway between Shakespeare and Chaucer and I don't know if you've ever read Chaucer but he's almost incomprehensible yeah I've, I've heard a little bit of it read to me, I think, and it's kind of a different language, isn't it? It, it is. Well, it's, yeah. it's very Anglo-Saxon based. And, so and there did, was you, a... did you delve into any of that sort of primary text or more secondarily? Like... Yeah, no, I, I did actually read quite a few of the primary law texts and everything just to see what the women's rights were around things like, um, especially there's a character, I don't know if you've got to it yet, but there's a character who owns a brothel. Yep. And women were actually not allowed to own brothels a at that point. House. <laughs> a stew so, house. Yeah, yeah. yeah so um, oh, that's terrible, isn't it? Women weren't allowed to own much at all, were they? Yeah, but um, I, read a, I read a lot of the primary texts around law just to see what their rights were and what they could own and couldn't own and, you know, what the fines were just for doing anything out of the do, ordinary. Did you find that stuff through, like, online libraries and databases? Or? Yeah, there's, there's actually quite a lot out there. And, yep. you know, you can connect through universities. Uh, there's a map in the beginning of the book that is actually... Yep. So good. I love a map. I hate it when I don't have maps. <laughs> Yeah, good fantasy author. Always had a map in the beginning. I had that particular map. I actually, uh, I actually bought the original because it's created by a company in London. And when I was doing my research, I realised that they had accidentally misnamed two of the towers in the Tower of London. Uh huh. So I contacted that. Well, I contacted the cartographer and I contacted the Tower of London and confirmed it and got a hold of the cartographer and said, "Do you know that you've misnamed your towers?" And he was like, "Oh, really? Oh, okay. I'll fix that." So I've I fixed the official map of 1520 London. Good job. So, yeah, you know, a random Australian author goes and manages to fix an official map of that's, London. I thought that was kind of cool. That's for you. I mean, yeah. <laughs> we just can't help ourselves, can we? So no, just got to fix no. this up. You can't have that mistake there. No, no. <laughs> okay. 
Okay, very cool. So, um, the version of Sing a Song of Sixpence that yeah. becomes the structure for like the title of every chapter. Where yeah. is that version from? It's it's basically the original version with a couple of slight modifications to suit the story. Cool. And then about oh, what is it? About two thirds the way through, you run out of song. Yeah. So. I actually shifted into the poetry of Poe. It's the, ra- it's the Raven by Poe. So right. the last few lines are from that instead because it suited the the climax of the story and it carried on that Blackbird's theme quite nicely. Very cool. Authory powers. Because I'm like looking at all these different versions and going, that's not it, that's not it. Where did she find this version? <laughs> and uh, she created it. Yeah, a little bit of artistic license here. And the next the next book that I'm working on is the sequel, which is Blackbird's Return, and the poetic theme for that one is going to be Lavender's Blue because it's a, a play off of England versus Ireland where I'm going to have Queen Elizabeth versus Grace O'Malley, who's the Irish pirate queen. So it will be Lavender's Blue, which will represent Queen Elizabeth, and Lavender's Green, which will represent um, Grace O'Malley. Cool. I should get you to sing a bit of that for us. <laughs> no, no, I've actually got my lute downstairs and I'm learning to play uh, Sing a Song of Sixpence for the audiobook, which is going to get recorded this year, but uh, I haven't quite got oh, the skill up yet. Awesome. So is Blackbird's Return coming out this year or I've heard you had you have a couple of books coming out this year that you're working on at the moment? Yeah, I'm hoping to get Blackbird's Return out late this year. I'm still going to actually write it at the moment. It's just in the plotting stages. But at, uh, this month I'm actually just about to release a science fiction fantasy shared world not um, series of short stories with a fellow author named Pamela Jess, and it's called The Zookeeper's Tales of Interstellar Oddities because we just had a blast writing these science fiction short stories set in the future of the Terran expansion into the galaxy and it was just so much fun. We're like, yeah, let's get this out. So that is out March 1st. Great. Are there lots of interesting animals in that? Yeah, there's some really weird stuff. I mean, we let our imaginations go a little bit crazy with this. (laughs) Great. Very cool. Um, So when you attended Supernova recently... You had some great success with book sales for the Australian, is it Specfic Writers Group? Um, as well as promoting your own ADAD and Kalima Chronicles books, you sold something like 100 books for the group. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah. we had the Australian Specfic, is just a Facebook group um, yeah. set up by a lovely lady named Alana Andrews. And it's just trying to get the Australian specfic authors, well, specfic just means science fiction, fantasy, that sort of stuff, yeah. just to all cooperate with each other and help each other out and support each other. And and from that came the idea of, well, you know, let's get a stand at Supernova and sell they're books. they're cheap, are they? So banding together, of course, makes sense for paying for the booth and everything. And Yeah, exactly. So we bought three booths for Brisbane and set it up like a proper store with lots of shelves and it went a bit nuts. We Yeah, we sold over 100 books, which was fantastic. That is so cool. And what do you think goes into, like, making people want to buy books? Ah, uh, I mean... The people who come to Supernova are nerds and geeks like all of us authors are, and we all tend to love books. 
we all tend to love science fiction fantasy. So usually it's just about asking them what they like. You know, when they walk up and their eye is caught by a cover, it starts with a great cover and then you just say to them, hey, you know, what do you like to read? And then you start pointing out books that fit what they like to read and, you know, if they if they like the blurb, they'll buy it. Yeah, it's awesome. they're pretty easy sell a lot of the time. Yeah, 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 we love buying books, don't we? Yeah, we buy too many. Oh my god, so many. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good it's a good thing to do though. It is. Um, so martial arts is one of your hobbies, and you bring that knowledge into your writing, of course, and share that with others through your Fight Like a Girl nonfiction book and workshops, which you've presented at GenreCon. Um, what tips do you have for people writing fighting women? Yeah, I I really enjoyed um, pulling that all together because I have done martial arts for like. Oh, it's 20 years now and I throw knives and do archery and do all of those things as well as um, an actual martial art. And I found reading a lot of books by, especially by male authors, is that they didn't actually understand that women think differently, respond differently, approach violence differently. We just, we're we're equal, we're just not the same. And if you write women like men, then it it actually doesn't come across correctly to your female readers. Your male readers won't really know the difference, but your female readers will. So the workshops I've actually been giving all around the country and I'm hoping to give it at uh, New Zealand Worldcon as well. Awesome. The the biggest tip is learn the difference between men and women. (laughs) They're just not the same. They're not not men with boobs. Yeah, right. I guess because, like, so women are probably smaller on average, um, quite fast, aren't they, I would think? And Well, men tend, on by and large, men tend to be physically stronger. That's not the case all the time, but it is the majority of the time. Sort of thing, um, yeah. We, yeah, which means women have to have some other advantage in order to succeed against them. They have to be either faster or more skilled or have a – a better mindset that means they're absolutely bloody-mindedly determined to win because we tend to be socialised to be less aggressive than men and to respond less aggressively. So we've got a lot to overcome psychologically and physically in order to win a fight. And if your writer doesn't understand that and if your character isn't a trained character, then it's a it's a really huge disparity in between reality and, and what your character is doing. Yeah, interesting. Um, I was wondering, at your workshops, do you get your writers to get up and have a have a smile <laughs> or anything, or do they get? I, to... I do. Oh, I great. do sometimes, depending on the length of three hour workshops. I can, I can, I get it, get them up and, and they t- I teach them a few basic you know wrist locks and a few basic techniques and then at the end we throw some knives which is always fun it's always a laugh watching people get all excited when they stick a knife into the board oh my goodness how do you throw knives in a like a, a classroom <laughs> Do you bring well, my, my very talented husband made a giant sort of cardboard knife-throwing oh, target cool. that I could carry and take in with me, and I set that up and oh, pace it out so it's the right distance. Yeah. Very cool. Awesome. Well, I'll be signing up for that one at, um, at Worldcon then. <laughs> that sounds really fun. Um, it is a lot of fun. Yeah. Cool. So, and also speaking of fighting, I saw that I saw you say on Facebook how great um, the fight scenes in The Witcher were. 
So um, I watched the whole series and I loved it. Um, but it's received mixed reviews. So what's your take on The Witcher? Well, I loved it. I mean, that opening uh, episode, Henry Cavill has actually done some interviews on that and he convinced the production company to hire a specialist uh, fight scene coordinator and choreographer and they did a brilliant job with that. Those last couple of fight scenes where he nailed those. He moves beautifully. He's not actually a trained martial artist, but he moves beautifully. So he really trained hard for that. Yeah. And he's got a very – they've given him a, a quite unique sword fighting style that isn't necessarily always realistic, but it yeah. sort of suits his character. It's beautiful. The only challenge I had is – yeah, the only challenge I had is that in later episodes they, did, they didn't have the, fight, the same fight choreographer, so that some of the other fight scenes don't work quite as well. Right. But honestly, the, the whole series is just beautiful to watch. And actually I have a question for you. Did you have any difficulty in following – the timelines, because that what seems to be the biggest complaint people have. Not when I watched it the second time. Yeah, so I didn't have so any yeah, problems at either. First, at first, I didn't know. I'm like, who are they? What's going on? But um, <laughs> I just watched it again, which was a pleasure as well. So I really enjoyed that. Like, I like stuff that I'm like, I can't work out what's going on because I think it keeps me engaged. And um. And I it love does to, yeah. to watch something again and then going, oh, okay, yeah, 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 just quite happy with the shuffle. And it's, it's, it's one, one of the, it's, it's one, one of the good, good things about, about, you know, writing a good book as well is, is putting in enough little details that engage people, but not so much that you give away the ending, you know, just yeah. that little hints of foreshadowing so that when they get to the end, they go, Oh, yeah, yeah, I think of it as like a puzzle, like a good work of fiction is a puzzle and you should be trying to work it out kind of all the way through and then it all comes together or even on a second read yeah. and, and finally you, you yeah, understand exactly. it. Yeah, yeah exactly right. It, it keeps an intelligent reader engaged and, and that's that's what's good. I mean, you, it's also there's also a place for... You know, what's often referred to as bubblegum fiction where Absolutely. it's just an easy read and you don't have to think because your brain is dead. I love easy reads too, yeah, like just an adventure or romance. But I'll read anything. But how about yeah. you? What What's your reading um, based around? Uh, look, I read really widely and I always have, uh, like everything from romances and historical to detectives to thrillers to a lot of science fiction and fantasy and I think it helps as an author because you can then pull tropes and concepts from all of the genres and and put them into your your works and sneak them in there so you know you can get a detective novel wrapped in a fantasy or you can get a murder mystery wrapped in a a cozy mystery you know wrapped in a romance or it just makes it more interesting if you can blend them together that way I think that works so well too like because there's like something that romance brings to something that like to text that is is interesting and then there's like you have to have some mystery or like it's not yeah it's not that interesting so like yeah I think there is a lot of overlap and I I quite quite like that yeah, yeah. and so, I mean where mostly I tend to write fantasy you know young adult fantasy adult fantasy science fiction I do actually have one romance novel out there but it's an action romance where the, the heroine gets to rescue herself and beats the crap 
bad of the bad guy because that's kind of who I am and I want to empower women and this is a good way to do it. It makes me happy when the heroine rescues the the hero or whatever he is. That's that's, that's so much more fun than the other way around. Women can do stuff, can do stuff too. and I actually think it's really important. And my husband's one of my biggest advocates. He loves my writing because he likes the fact that I always try to write the male-female relationships as equals. Like nobody's yeah. nobody's saving each other. Nobody's uh, you know dominating each other. They're 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 equal footing and they treat each other with respect. And yeah. I think that's important for us as authors to show to younger you know, generations reading our books, but this is how a respectful relationship works. Yeah, there are some lovely relationships in Blackbird Sing, um, like the surgeons, um, and, like, you can see that mutual respect and and love. Yeah, yeah. And I have a lot of asshole (laughs) guys as well. Yeah, which was kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I've actually had a lot of people give me feedback about which stories made them cry, and, I've, and there's about four different stories in there made, that people keep telling me make them cry. So I figure I'm, I'm winning as an author if I, if I can make them cry. I'm doing well. Absolutely, make them laugh, make them cry. Yeah. So how do you tend to find the next book that you're going to read? Do you um, like recommendations by friends, or is it just what you feel like at the time? Uh, actually, I usually go to, I don't know if you've been to the Lifeline Book Fest. There's like one every six months. Yes. I go in there and I pick up a huge stack of books and then I stack them next to my couch and I pick them up one at a time and I'll read like the first four or five pages and go, yeah, nope. So you're like <laughs> a taster. <laughs> you taste test yeah. and then you're like, this is I I'm terrible that way, but I that's just don't awesome. have a lot of time. No, that's great. I mean, it's better. For a long while, I would always try and finish a book, which I was pretty good at, unless it was anything to do, anything nautical. Like, I just couldn't read books about <laughs> sailors, and I'm sorry to say that includes Gulliver's <laughs> Travels. Like, I'm yawning. Oh, my God. What is it about books about sailors? But, yeah, but you're right. There's just not time. Um, to read no. everything to the end anymore because there's so much to read. So do you read it all uh, on Kindle or you're a paper paper person? I'm mostly a paper person, yeah. I still like my books. I just like to curl up on the couch, you know, with the, the light over my shoulder and flip the pages. And, and I mean, to be honest, even in a bad book, there's something to be learned sometimes as an author. You can, yeah. you can read and go, why is this so terrible? Oh, I understand. And that helps you as a, as a writer. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. So do you have, you must have a lot of books unless you go take them back to Lifeline. I actually do. I'll give them away if I haven't read them. If I didn't like them, I'll just I'll send them, some of them off to my niece in Tasmania, and other ones I'll just give away to people. So yeah, I don't have a lot of space in my house, so I keep my favourites that I will lovingly reread until they're fallen apart. Yeah. But otherwise, yeah, they go. It's a great form of reuse, isn't it? To just um, send them back again, and yeah. Yeah. I do feel mildly guilty that they are secondhand and some poor author is not getting royalties, but, you know, yeah. hey. But then they're getting read, so that's a great thing too. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, 
thanks so much for your time, Ike, and um, all the best with your nominations for the World Fantasy and Prime Minister's Literary Award for Blackbird Sing. Um, to find out more about Ike's work, search for Ike online, and now, see you later, Ike. Thank, Thank you for that. that. Talk, Talk to you later. later.